Hi, this is Cindy from My Nursing Mastery, and today we're going to be talking about ventilation, oxygenation, and perfusion. Just like our other podcasts in this series, when you hear this sound, pay special attention as this may show up on the NCLEX. All right, let's get started. First, we're going to cover just some very basic things about the respiratory system structure. It's divided into the upper and lower respiratory areas. The upper respiratory area includes the larynx, which is responsible for speech and maintaining airway patency and protects from swallowed food or fluids. When a patient has an upper airway obstruction, it occurs in this region. This also includes a portion of the trachea. Now, the lower portion of the respiratory system, which includes the lungs, has bronchioles, small tubules, that lead to alveolar ducts and alveoli. These are very thin-walled, single layer of epithelium sacs covered by a mesh of capillaries. The anatomy is important to understand how oxygenation occurs. We'll get to that later, but let's talk a little bit about how pulmonary ventilation works. First, a tip. As we talk about the different factors that affect ventilation and therefore oxygenation, it will help for you to imagine the structures of the lungs and the anatomy as the air is breathed in and flows down through the structures, fills the alveoli sacs, and diffuses into the blood to be carried away. We will begin by talking about the structures that control breathing in the brain, and then we will talk about larger structures within the respiratory system. And lastly, we will talk about forces in the blood and at the cellular level that affect oxygenation. The brain controls breathing through the medulla and the pons that are located in the brainstem. This explains why breathing is automatic or autonomic, and it also explains how breathing can be impaired when the nervous system is affected. For example, a severe head injury or drugs can impair breathing because these factors can affect the central nervous system. Respiration is the process of gas exchange. This occurs with pulmonary ventilation or movement of air into the alveoli. From there, diffusion of oxygen and carbon dioxide occur between the alveoli and the pulmonary capillaries. Oxygen and carbon dioxide are transported and exchanged through the blood and from the tissues. Diffusion comes into play again between the capillaries and the cells of body tissues. One of the most important things about oxygenation is to understand that changes or interruptions can occur at any of these points and affect the condition of the patient. Okay, we've talked about the control center. Now let's talk about the physical structures that allow ventilation to occur. We're going to begin by talking about two important factors, volume and pressure. The tidal volume in an adult lung is about 500 mLs. 
This is the amount of air inspired and expired in each breath. A good way to remember this is that tides flow in and out. So the tidal volume is the amount that flows into the lungs and flows out of the lungs. Naturally, any changes in volume will affect ventilation and oxygenation. Equally important is the amount of pressure inside the pleural cavity just surrounding the lungs, as well as the intrapulmonary pressure or the pressure within the lungs themselves. These two forces exert pressure on the actual lungs themselves. These two opposing pressures keep the lungs inflated and functioning perfectly. The intrapulmonary pressure within the lungs always equalizes with atmospheric pressure outside the body. The intrapleural pressure, or the pressure inside the pleural cavity just surrounding the lungs and lung lining, is always slightly negative. This is in relation to the outside atmospheric pressure, the pressure we just talked about. This keeps the pleura or the lining of the lungs pressed against the inside of the thorax and keeps the lungs inflated. Inhalation is an active process. The diaphragm actively pulls air into the lungs. Accessory muscles for respiration, like the anterior neck muscles and the intercostal muscles and even the abdominal muscles, help pull air into the lungs during problems with respiration. But for normal breathing, they're generally not needed. While this atmospheric pressure surrounded by the slightly negative pressure we spoke of naturally allows air to flow out without accessory muscle use and without activating the diaphragm. So exhalation, unlike inhalation, is passive. This is why we say breathing should be effortless and quiet and shouldn't take a lot of force or effort or accessory muscle use. In normal breathing, there should be very little effort. Any obvious accessory muscle use indicates breathing difficulty. So we're still talking about pulmonary ventilation or the movement of air down into the alveoli. And the function of structures that help get air in and out of the lungs are a factor. For example, diseases and trauma can affect accessory muscle function. Diseases such as polio or spinal cord injury can affect the muscles for respiration, impairing the ability of the thoracic cavity to expand. Trauma to the chest wall can affect intrapleural pressure as it becomes equal with the atmosphere and causes the lung to collapse. Remember, this pressure has to stay slightly negative to ensure proper lung function. Some other factors we need to think about that affect lung function include lung compliance, which is the stretchability of the lung tissue, and lung recoil, which is the tendency of the lungs to collapse away from the chest wall. This allows the lungs to expel air. The surface tension of the fluid lining of the alveoli have the greatest effect on lung recoil. Fluid molecules tend to draw together, reducing the size of the alveoli. 
Surfactant is also important. This is a lipoprotein produced by alveoli cells. It acts as a detergent, which reduces the surface tension of fluid. This is especially important in newborns. Now that we've talked about how to get air into the lungs, let's talk about the smaller structures that affect ventilation. Besides pulmonary pressures, some of the most difficult concepts to master about respiration are gas exchange. So I'm going to try to break this down and make it easy for you. Most importantly, we're going to talk about diffusion. This is moving from an area of greater concentration or pressure to lesser concentration or less pressure. We're going to focus on factors that affect this gas exchange. The first is the partial pressure. Now, a partial pressure is a pressure exerted by individual gas in a mixture according to its concentration in that mixture. Normally, partial pressures are such that diffusion is made easier. This process moves oxygen into the blood from the alveoli and moves carbon dioxide out of the blood into the lungs. Remember that diffusion moves from an area of greater concentration or greater pressure to lesser pressure. So picture the capillaries surrounding the alveoli. The partial pressure of oxygen in the venous blood of the pulmonary arteries is 60 millimeters of mercury, and that same pressure in the alveoli is 100 millimeters of mercury. Therefore, the oxygen is going to naturally move from the alveoli into the pulmonary arteries. Oxygen is breathed in during ventilation and flows from the higher pressure to the lower pressure once it reaches the alveoli. So long as pressures are normal, this occurs naturally. As we learn more about critical care, we learn that when this pressure is affected by even simple factors like reduced blood flow in a patient that is hemorrhaging, this can greatly affect oxygenation. More complex factors such as electrolyte imbalance can also affect partial pressures. We've talked about partial pressure of oxygen, so let's just touch on partial pressure of carbon dioxide. It works much in the same way, but remember carbon dioxide is leaving the blood and going to the alveoli to be expelled during ventilation. So partial pressure of carbon dioxide is normally 45 millimeters of mercury in the pulmonary capillaries. It's 40 millimeters of mercury in the alveoli, a very slight difference, but enough to move CO2 from the capillaries into the alveoli to be expelled by the lung. Keep in mind that partial pressures in the venous system are not the same as partial pressures in the arterial system. Okay, we've covered the first big factor, which is partial pressure. Each of these pressures has an effect on diffusion across capillary membranes near small sacs in the lungs. Another important factor is the transportation of oxygen and carbon dioxide. This happens by cells that are in the blood that come together to help transport these gases 
throughout the body. The first factor is hemoglobin, which is an oxygen-carrying red pigment. It's a protein found in a red blood cell. Hemoglobin binds to oxygen, and that's called saturation. Oxygen binding, and therefore full saturation, is affected by four main things. The partial pressure of the oxygen that we talked about earlier, the temperature, the pH, and the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. So partial pressures don't just affect diffusion. They affect how well hemoglobin will bind oxygen to carry it. Here are some critical care tips. First, the higher the partial pressure of oxygen, up to 70 millimeters of mercury normally, the more hemoglobin likes oxygen and the higher the oxygen saturation. Second, the higher the temperature, lower the pH, and higher the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, the lower the oxygen saturation. It's not so important that you memorize these facts, but what's important is to understand how complex these factors are. Any single factor can have a great effect on oxygenation. Maintaining balance of temperature and pH and partial pressures is super important for maintaining balance for oxygenation. We have a little bit more to discuss about the transport of oxygen and carbon dioxide. Let's understand the term oxyhemoglobin. This is the compound or the combination of oxygen and hemoglobin. Remember, hemoglobin carries oxygen. And hemoglobin attaches to red blood cells, the most abundant cells in blood. The rate or the speed of transport is affected by three main factors. The first is cardiac output. The second is the number of red blood cells and the hematocrit. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the third is exercise or increased metabolism. The hematocrit is simply a lab value. It represents the percentage of blood that is red blood cells. Remember, red blood cells have the hemoglobin that carries the oxygen. Therefore, the amount of red blood cells and their ability to bind oxygen to hemoglobin affects oxygenation. A low hematocrit can indicate that there aren't enough red blood cells carrying hemoglobin. So in trying to understand the transport of oxygen as it relates to ventilation and oxygenation, let's put this into context. The number of red blood cells and hemoglobin is important, as well as any excessive increase or decrease in the hematocrit, because this will raise or lower the blood viscosity. And this is enough to change the ability for oxygen to be transported. A good example is anemia. So even if partial pressures are normal, if there are problems with transporting oxygen in the blood, oxygenation is affected. Okay, we're still talking about the transport of oxygen in the blood. The second factor we mentioned was cardiac output. Cardiac output is important because this is the amount of blood pumped by the heart. This is normally about five liters per minute. Any pathologic condition that decreases cardiac output 
will naturally diminish oxygen to the periphery tissues. It also will decrease the amount of blood going to and from the lungs. The last factor we mentioned that relates to transport of oxygen is metabolism. Carbon dioxide is produced by the process of metabolism. It is transported to the lungs in different ways. So the rate at which carbon dioxide is expelled is affected by things like exercise. So the last part of understanding normal ventilation and oxygenation is consideration of some lifespan issues that can affect this process. The first factor is age. The respiratory rate of neonates is about 40 to 80 breaths per minute. The resting heart rate for neonates is much higher than it is for adults. Factors that affect ventilation in older adults include hypertension as blood pressure rises and lung compliance, which can decrease with certain conditions. Some older adults may develop changes in the shape of their chest, such as a barrel chest. This alteration results in the chest wall becoming rigid and more air is retained in the lungs, which decreases the capacity of the lungs. General health of the lungs and respiratory system is affected by lifestyle, occupations, exercise, and diet. For example, nicotine increases the heart rate and blood pressure and peripheral vascular resistance, which increases the workload of the lungs and the heart. When a person becomes overheated, this results in vasodilation and increased cardiac output. This increases the demand for oxygen. Breathing generally becomes faster. Cold environments cause vasoconstriction and the decreased need for oxygen. Ingestion of alcohol tends to slow the respiratory rate, as does the ingestion of narcotics. These drugs decrease the rate and depth of respirations. As we discussed, this would decrease the tidal volume and ultimately decrease ventilation and oxygenation. One of the most common presentations for patients are those who are hyperventilating. This results in a rise in partial pressure of oxygen as the partial pressure of carbon dioxide falls. And this can result in feeling lightheaded and having numbness in the extremities. Although the body adapts in the short term, hyperventilation over a long period of time can cause decreased oxygenation. So to summarize, respiratory function, ventilation, and ultimately oxygenation can be affected by three major areas. The first is movement of air in and out of the lungs, or ventilation. The second is diffusion of oxygen or carbon dioxide between the alveoli and pulmonary capillaries. These alterations are called ventilation and perfusion mismatches. And the last area is transport to and from the tissue and the cells. This term is called perfusion. Well, that concludes this podcast on ventilation and oxygenation. Thanks for listening. To listen to other podcasts in this series, go to MyNursingMastery.com.